How's everybody doing today? Good. Are you a little cold? Are you a little frozen with this morning the way it is? I appreciate you guys being a little flexible today. Some of you that normally come to our, our 8.30 service that are joining us here, thank you for doing that. Just so you know, we, uh, we, we canceled that service and, uh, because we wanted to make sure that our parking lot had enough time to get cleared and make sure it was safe, give it another hour or so for the roads. Did anybody have any trouble getting here? Obviously not because you're here. And if people had trouble getting here, they wouldn't be here. So I guess that's kind of an odd question, right? But anyway, great. Glad you guys are here. So glad. And if this happens to be your very first time with us, man, we're glad you're here too. Hope you'll come back and do this all over again and, and you do it a second time and a third time and then eventually you just feel like this is my family. That's what we'd really want. So we hope that'd be your case as well. We are in a series right now called Origins. Many of you know that. We're studying the book of Genesis and we started this amazing 50 chapter book of the Bible back in the fall. Then we took a short break for Christmas and now we're back at it again. And, um, and, and this is a, a book that's all about our origins. It's about our heritage. It's about our beginnings. And uh, I've said this many times throughout this series, knowing where we came from says so much about where we are going. And as a Christian, nothing could be truer than that. It's so important for us to understand how all of this got started. And when you understand how all this got started, what God was doing in the very beginning, what his plan is, it makes so much more sense about why things are the way they are today. Now, so far in Genesis, very early in the book of Genesis, we saw God uh, as both our creator and our judge. We've seen the beauty of God's creation on full display and the depths of his love as he made mankind in his own image. So that all the aspects of God, our creator, very clearly on display. But we also see him as a judge as well. We see that God will not contend with mankind's wickedness towards each other forever. God will not put up forever with mankind's rebellious ways against his will and his desire. So within the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, we see God create a perfect world and then we see how his judgment falls on that perfect world and he wipes out all living creatures except for Noah and his family and some select animals. He saved them in an ark. You know, one of the most often overlooked verses in the Bible is Genesis chapter six, verse three. And it simply just says this. God said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. So here at the beginning, he kind of looks at it and goes, I'm not gonna contend with this forever. That word contend it has the understanding, you break it down to the original language of arguing. It's like, God, I'm not gonna argue about this forever. It's God's way of saying, I'm not gonna try to convince you forever. I'm not going to put up with it ongoing indefinitely. As a parent, if you've ever said anything like this to your son or daughter, it, it would contend sounds like this. We're not gonna keep talking about this. Have you ever had that conversation? We're not gonna keep talking about this. It's going to be this way because I said so. Every parent in here has said something like that to their kids before. You have looked your children in the eye and said, end of discussion. This is God in his way saying, I will not contend. This, we're not gonna keep talking about this. We're not gonna debate this endlessly. I'm not gonna contend with it forever. So starting in Genesis chapter six, and consistently throughout all the rest of scriptures, there is an understanding that overlays the entire Bible that the Lord will only put up for so much with so much for so long. And even right now, 
We know that there's gonna come a point, all Christians know that there's gonna come a point and only God knows when that day is gonna be and, and when that hour will be, but God will say enough is enough and the second coming of Jesus will be upon us in that moment and the end will come. And all the followers of Jesus Christ who are still alive, the church will be with God at that moment, will be rescued if you will and the rest will receive the punishment due them. Now. Just to make sure that we are all on the same page here, uh, my goal today is not to systematically unpack everything the Bible says about God's judgment or his wrath or, or, or eternal punishment or current punishment or anything like that. I just want you to know that's not my goal today. Um, my, my, my goal is to look at Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19 and understand that the events that happen there is connected to so much other things throughout the rest of the Bible. In fact, the events that we're gonna study today at this part in our study of the book of Genesis, uh, is there's a connection, I would say maybe a parallel, if you will, with the events that are going to unfold in the text and also connects us to the New Testament and it connects us to the end of, of time. Lord willing, you're gonna see how all of this connects together by the time that we're done here today. If you haven't done so yet, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. That's where we're gonna be today. And uh, you're gonna see some more aspects of, of God's unwillingness to contend with mankind forever. We're gonna see his, uh, as a creator, we're gonna see aspects of his judgment today all wrapped up and it does have implications for our lives today. If you were here last week, you might remember that we left a little bit on a cliffhanger, didn't we? A little bit on a cliffhanger. Let me just refresh your memory. Um, three men last week in the beginning of chapter 18, they show up at Abraham's home or his tent. You know, Abraham's nomadic lifestyle. He moved around a lot, but they show up. It turns out these three men, actually two of them were angels and one of them was, was God. And, and we see how Abraham shows incredible hospitality to God and these two angels. You might remember Abraham quickly got up, he bowed down, he served them, he, he told Sarah, hurry, make some bread with the finest flour. He ran out to the field and, and he's like, pick the choice tender calf, this is the one, this is gonna be special. And he has people prepare and he just, he just serves the Lord. We see him do it quickly and immediately and generously and humbly and, and we take a step back and as we did last week, we looked at that and we're like, Boy, I tell you, Abraham something, has something to teach us about what it looks like to serve the Lord. And there's some aspects and characteristics of that that we should adopt ourselves today as we serve the Lord. Now, after the meal, and the angels and God, they get up and, and they're getting ready to leave. And this is where we left off last week. They look down in the direction of Sodom. And the best that we can tell, um, this is about 25 or 30 miles away from where Abraham is, was currently living in the text. So they look down in that general direction towards Sodom and, um, and, 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 and it becomes very clear as you read this that uh, what the fuller picture is that these angels were on their way to Sodom to destroy it and they stopped off at Abraham's house or his tent to have a meal and now they're gonna keep going. This is our fuller understanding. Now Abraham was just kinda like a little rest stop on their way. These guys are on their way to destroy Sodom and, and as they're going, they're having this discussion about whether they should include Abraham in knowing what they're about to do. 
So let's look at verse 16 of chapter 18. You ready? When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So we kind of have this understanding. It feels like God's just kind of talking to the angels. Maybe Abraham's not hearing all this, but he's like, should I, should I tell him? And then God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. We already know this. This has been repeated many times over. God's not telling us anything new at this point. They're, they're talking about known things. Abraham will be a great nation. He says this in verse 19, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Again, this is just kind of the Lord summarizing what we already know between chapter 12 and chapter 18. God's already gonna do this for him. Then verse 20, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. Now, just so you guys know, there's, no, so there's clarity. God already knows. He knows what's gonna happen. It's not like he's gonna have to just go down there and explore it for himself. He already knows. This is his way of saying, I'm involved. I'm gonna be right there. I already know what's going on. The outcry has reached me. I'm going down there. Just so you guys know, if you look at the times when God speaks like this, like when he went down to Babel, I will go down and see. And he talks about Sodom, I will go down and see. That's never a good thing for the people he's going down to see. Every time God's bringing judgment when he goes down to see. And we've said it several times now in Genesis, like I said, with Babel and, and you know when he shows up in the garden even, What's he doing to confront Adam and Eve about what they did? I'm gonna, what has happened? God's very personally involved. So he's, I'm gonna go down and see. And he said, if not, I will know. Verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So the angels go on and God and Abraham are just kind of standing there watching them off into the distance. Now, if you were to ask me, why are we privy to this conversation between God and the angels and Abraham? Why are we allowed to know this? You know, and my honest answer, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why we are so blessed and privileged to have insight into this conversation other than to say in God's infinite wisdom, and his understanding of what he is doing with mankind, he saw this as a very important conversation for us to know about today. So we're privileged to know all of this. Ultimately, God decides that Abraham should know. Okay, I'm gonna let Abraham know. And, and God's explanation of this gives us really two clear understandings of why God thought it was important for Abraham to know what these two angels are about to do. And the first thing he says this, he goes, Abraham will become a great nation. So God, so in God's justification, I want Abraham to know that I'm about to sack these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I want him to know on the very basis of the fact that He's gonna become a great nation. What this means is he is gonna be in a position because he's now in the know, he's gonna understand what God is doing and why he's doing it, that he is gonna be in a position to relay to his family, 
his family that would ultimately become the Israelites. They're at the very beginning edge that God, Abraham is going to be able to relay to his family that obeying God and following his ways is the right path. It's always the right path. And, and, and what God says should be taken very seriously and his teachings on immorality and his warnings against such behavior should be taken very seriously. He said, God, Abraham's gonna be the father of many nations. He needs to know why I'm doing what I'm about to do. We do call him Father Abraham for a very specific reason. Because Abraham would become the father of the Israel nation. And he will perform, his role is, after Isaac is born, is to teach and guide and direct his children to follow after the ways of the Lord. Now, if you look at verse 19 again, God's very specific. What's he say? For I have chosen him. I've chosen Abraham to do what? He will direct his children. And what else? And his household. After him to do what? To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is all part of God's justification, his reasoning for bringing Abraham inside the loop to understand the actions that these angels are about to take. God lets him know about Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction and he's counting on Abraham. In fact, he's expecting Abraham to guide his family in the right path. And I'm just gonna say this to all the fathers out here today, all the believing fathers this right here is still an expectation that God has for believing fathers today. Not to sit back and hope things turn out well for our kids. In fact, there's a, there's a lesson we learned from Abraham's hospitality. There's a lesson we can learn from God's expectation of Abraham as a quote-unquote father of the Israelite nation. To, to trust that Abraham would, in a sense, biblically direct his household, teach his children the right way by doing what is right. This is an expectation that God has put on Abraham, and, and dads, this is an expectation that he has put on each and every one of us believing fathers. I'll never forget when I was in the eighth grade, a friend of mine from school came home and was gonna play at my house that day. And we went out riding bikes all afternoon after school was out. And when we came home, um, back to my house, we left our, as kids often do, we just dropped our bikes in the middle of the driveway and we came inside and, and, uh, and, and started to play. Well, after a while, it started to rain. We didn't know that, but my friend who, like I said, my parents had never met this friend. It's first time over at my house. Um, he looks out the window and he sees that it's downpouring on our bikes. And these are the words that came out of his mouth. Okay, I'm just gonna quote them word for word. You ready? He said, Jesus Christ, the bikes are getting soaked. Okay. So we ran outside, we grabbed the bikes, we pushed them inside the garage, and before we could get the kickstands down, my father had clearly planted himself in the doorway, coming out of the house, into the garage, with one of the most stern, firm looks on his face that you ever saw. And he looks at my friend, who he just met that day, and he said this, hey, we don't talk like that in my house. We don't take the Lord's name in vain in my house. And I don't ever wanna hear that out of you again in my house. And my friend, he was like, didn't know what to say. But he did manage to get out a, yes sir. And he never came over again, <laughs> never, 
never came over again after that. I don't know why. Wasn't interested in riding bikes with me anymore. My dad, who's my spiritual hero, by the way, he, he never sat back and hoped that vulgarities would stay out of his children's mouths. He didn't hope they'd figure it out one day. But he taught and modeled what clean speech sounds like. To this day, I can tell you, I never, ever heard my dad use a vulgarity ever. My whole life. It wasn't uncommon growing up for me to, to, to see, see something, and my dad would point it out, and he would follow up with something like this. And you know what the Bible says? That was my childhood. He took seriously his role of directing his household down godly paths. Why did God let Abraham in on his plans for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because he knew that Abraham would take this life lesson of punishment and direct his own household in a godly way, away from the what Sodom and Gomorrah, the residents there, were living. The sins of these cities were so grievous and their destruction was so swift that God knew Abraham, certainly not Abraham, would let his family follow in the same path. Why else did God tell Abraham this ahead of time? Well, Abraham, God knew that Abraham was gonna be what? He says it. He's going to, to, to bless all the nations on earth through Abraham. So not only will Abraham direct his own family, but Abraham's influence is widespread. Not just his biological descendants, but everyone. All nations on the earth will be blessed through Abraham. How is that possible? Why is that possible? Well, remember, Abraham would father what would become what? The Israelite nation. Also known in the Bible as the Hebrews, most commonly referred to as the Jews. God's chosen people. It would be the Jews who would bring us the Bible. It would be the Jews that would ultimately bring us our Savior, Jesus Christ. So yes, through Abraham, one man, his family, would be a blessing to all nations of the earth, all the way extending to us, because it was his family that brought us Jesus. And God knows this. God knows. He's going to be a blessing to all people. So, you know, so his influence will be widespread. Abraham's got to get this right. He's got to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. And he needs to direct his family well. We're no different, dads. No different today. I think if there's a big takeaway from this conversation between God and Abraham, it would be like this, that just like with Abraham, God too is expecting us to direct our children and our households to keep the way of the Lord. And some of you might be thinking right now, and I have conversations like this all the time, you might even say, I wasn't walking with the Lord when my kids were young. I wasn't even a Christian when my kids were young. I wasn't in any place in life to direct like what you're, you're talking about. I didn't get serious about my faith. I didn't become a serious Christ follower until my kids were gone. And you know, I'll tell you exactly what I tell everybody else who's ever said something like that to me. My words is, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. Godly fatherhood does not stop at age 18. 
So like in our world today, who's like, you're 18, you're a man, you're an adult woman, good luck to you. No, 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 I don't ever read that anywhere in the Bible. Godly parenting, godly fatherhood doesn't stop at 18. 18. Now the nature of the relationship can change quite significantly. My father, when I, um, when I was driving away for college, I was leaving home forever, I was going off to college. My dad in the driveway, I'm getting ready to start my car, and he said, Joe, I want you to know something. Never again will I ever tell you what to do. I said, oh, thanks, Dad. But I will give you more advice than you'll ever be able to handle in a lifetime <laughs> from this point forward. Godly parenting doesn't stop when your children turn 18. And here's how I advise parents today. As your children are gone and out of your house and maybe you're in a position where it's like, I, I, I sure wish I was living the kind of life today, back then as now, I, I, I encourage you this. Pray for your adult children every single day and don't ever stop. Pray for them every single day. As much as it depends on you, direct the household you have now, even if it's just you by yourself or it's you and your spouse or your, maybe your grandparents stage or whatever, you direct your household in godliness and righteousness. That doesn't stop when the children leave. I'd encourage all of you, speak openly all the time to your adult children and your grandchildren about what the Lord has done in your life. Talk about openly the way things used to be in your life and why they're not that way anymore. And let your children, your adult children, see the full display of your vulnerability in front of them. That is guiding and directing. Let them see the change. If you need to repent to your adult children, don't delay. Repent. Tell them you made mistakes. Identify the mistakes you wish you'd have done differently. Repent before them. Repent before the Lord. And then from that moment, forge ahead in the strength that God provides you with the grace that he gives you, knowing deep down inside what we all believe in our heart. God cares more about where you're going than where you've been. So from this day forward, I will direct this family and I will direct this, my grandchildren and my family, as long as God gives me ability, in the path of righteousness, and they're gonna see a Christ follower in me. And I will tell you this, that your most influential days of guiding your household may still be in front of you, not behind you, and you may be a grandparent already. Your most influential days you'll ever have in your family can still be out in front of you. Now what happens next in the progression of the text is actually a bit of a surprise because God tells Abraham what's gonna happen and we see a reaction out of Abraham that's a little bit unexpected. He goes to God and he's like, can we talk about this just a little bit? Look at, look at chapter 18, verse 23. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is, is thinking about, are you talking about everybody? What if there's any righteous people there? And no, I have no doubt in my mind that when Abraham bravely approaches God with this question, his nephew Lot, who is living in Sodom, is on his mind. I, I have no doubts. Lot has always been on his mind. Are, are, you, you, know, are you gonna wipe away Everybody? He asked God if he's willing to spare the whole city if he can just find rich, 50 righteous people in the whole city. And surprisingly, God goes, yeah, okay. If I can find 50 righteous people, I'll save them all. And, and then Abraham, if you've read ahead, then, then you know that Abraham's like, well, what if you can only find 45? And God's like, well, okay. For 45 people, I'll save the whole city. Now, if you keep reading, Abraham, well, what, what if you just found 40? 
Okay. Then Abraham talks him down to 30. And he talks him down to 20. And if you keep reading, it's, it's a very surprising conversation. Uh, Abraham talks God all the way down to 10. God, if you could find 10 righteous people in Sodom, would you save it? And surprisingly too, God says, sure. If I can find 10, I'll, I'll, I'll save it. I think deep down inside, Abraham knew that finding 50 was a stretch. I mean, Abraham's lived in the area a long time. He's already rescued all the people of Sodom at least once already. You might remember back in you know, 13 and 14 when they get, he knows who they are. And maybe he's like, uh, okay, okay, that's a little aggressive in my estimates. Maybe 50 is a little high. And he continued to work him down to 10. And I think it was in the hope that his nephew Lot and his family could be saved. I believe that the thought of his nephew suffering the destruction of that doomed city, it really impacted Abraham. And so Abraham, he intercedes for his own family. And he begged God in behalf of that whole city. It's like, we see actually Abraham take on this idea of intercessory between God and these people. And this intercession here uh, for the, the residents of Sodom, I think should at least cause us today at a very minimum to consider the same kind of things in our lives. I would ask you this question. Do you pray intercessory prayers today? Is that part of your normal prayer life? What I mean, do you pray to God on behalf of others? So do you go to God on a regular basis and you pray for the lost souls in Bella Vista? Do you, do you pray for their behalf? Do you pray for your family? Like on behalf, Lord, I come to you on behalf of my family and I, I intercede to you on their behalf and your guidance. Do you, do you pray prayers like that? Have you ever pleaded with God just honestly about the needs that other people have? Essentially, this is exactly what Abraham is doing. He is going to God on behalf of other people. Now, I've heard some people say it like this before, and it takes some thought to think about it, but I heard people say things like this. We are never more like Jesus than when we are praying intercessory prayers. I didn't really think about that. Like, what, what do you mean we're never more like Jesus when we're praying intercessory prayers? You know, the Bible speaks pretty clearly about, about Jesus' role as a mediator, an intercessor between us and God. This is one of his primary roles. And Paul teaches about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that essentially Jesus is doing the role of intercessor all the time. He says this, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It is Jesus who represents us before the throne of God. And through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus became the mediator between us and God. And in that sense, Jesus very much is interceding on our behalf. Do you remember when Peter denied Jesus three times right before he went to the cross? And it was that horrible night and he got confronted and Jesus even told him, you're gonna deny you ever knew me three times before the sun comes up. And Peter's like, no, it never happened. It sure did happen. Do you remember after the resurrection, Jesus meets with Peter one-on-one -on -one and restores him. Do you remember the whole conversation? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You know what, Lord, I do, I love you. And he restores Peter. Peter. 
And in the midst of that conversation, Jesus says something very fascinating to Peter. It's Luke chapter 22, verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, it's the same way saying, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is Jesus, the savior of the world, interceding on Peter's behalf. Satan wants to sift all of you, but I have prayed for you. She's our intercessor, our mediator. And all of this leads me to consider Jesus to this day interceding on our behalf. And, and for us today as Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit, we too should take on that role of interceding on behalf of others, like Abraham showing great concern for his family and for the residents of Sodom. If you could just find 10 people, God, 10 righteous people, would you save them? It's his intercessor. I, I have often prayed prayers like this. Maybe some of your prayers sound very similar. I'll often pray, God, would you bring, I know where this person is going, and would you provide for them one really strong Christian friend to go down this journey with them? I've prayed that over so many college students who are going into the lion's den called the educational system. Lord, Please bring one really strong Christian friend in their life. I've prayed prayers like this with many families. One of the, one of the things that, that I'm exposed to often as a minister is I've sat with family at their darkest moments. Tragedy befalls them. And I've prayed with family on our knees and I've prayed things like this. God, in the midst of this tragedy and this destruction, would your light still shine through? And Lord, somehow, some way, would your light shine through so that all those who are involved in this would see you more than anything else? Intercessory. Do you pray prayers like this? Do you pray for your children's future spouses? Do you, do you pray? We, my wife and I pray for this for our kids. I, Lord, would you bring into their life one day really good Christian women? Lord, we pray you bring Christian, solid women into our lives. And we've been praying those prayers since they were in diapers. And it's not too young to start praying like that for your children when they're in diapers. And Lord, would you let her love the Kansas City Chiefs as much as I do? That'd be secondary. Don't put past me what I pray for. I tell you, much more, much more could be said. I'd never pray they'd be Cowboys fans. No, I think that's what you said. Hey, much more of this could be said. We could spend a long time talking about prayer and intercession, but, but Abraham is, in, that's what I want you to say. Abraham's in interceding on behalf of these residents of Sodom, and God agrees, okay, 10. I, I don't know what would have happened if, if Abraham, if he could have talked him down to one. I don't know. I guess we'll never know, but they agree on 10. Now, look at chapter 19, verse one. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. So they, they left Abraham's house. Remember, they're on their way to destroy Sodom. They stop for a meal at Abraham's place and then they keep going and they're moving at a pretty good clip to get 25, 30 miles down the road by the end of the day. And Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. So the same day as they're with Abraham and, and they meet Lot first, first off. <coughs> When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. 
But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So the very first person that they encounter in Sodom is Abraham's nephew. And is this a, a, just a godly coincidence? Is this strange? Is the fact that Abraham's been interceding on Lot's behalf, the angels go right to him? Maybe yes on all those things. But they encounter Abraham's Lot, uh, nephew Lot, and, and where is he? He is sitting in the gateway of the city. We're talking about why that's important in just a minute. But just to remind you about Lot's trajectory. Lot has been with Abraham since the very beginning. When we first meet Abraham in chapter 11, chapter 12, Lot's right with him. Lot travels, he journeys, he does everything with Abraham. And I do believe it was God's intention for Abraham and Lot to be together the whole time. But you remember, early on, they go off to Egypt out of fear, and we see a change in Lot. He seems to really love Egypt. I don't think he wanted to leave. Made a lot of money there, but they got kicked out of Egypt. They come back as wealthy men. And now the land could not support them, and they have to separate. Is this some of the details coming back? And Abraham, being generous, says, Lot, you can have whatever land you pick. I'll take the rest. And Lot looked down into the land. He said, I want that. Why? Because the land he saw looked like Egypt. It reminded me, I don't want to, there was, there was, you could always argue, there was a part of Lot's heart that got very worldly in Egypt and he always wanted to be there. It's like he almost left a part of his heart there. Very worldly in a sense. So Abraham's like, sure, you take it. And we see a progression in Lot's life. What happens? We just see it through the chapters of the Bible. Lot's eyes gaze towards Sodom and he's like, I want to be there, knowing the wickedness and everything. And then he moves towards Sodom. And then eventually he moves into Sodom. And right now he is in danger of suffering the same fate as Sodom. So he's made this downward trajectory descent, if you will, towards darkness, towards wickedness. And he's moved inch, 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 inch closer. And then now he's fully in the city. Now there's, there's a sermon right there we could preach. Lot's raising his family in these cities. These angels arrive there and they find him in the gateway, which is significant because the gateway of ancient cities like this is where commerce and business, and it's where the lawmakers, it's where they all sat around and did stuff. And so the fact that, that Lot is here in this area and he's the first to greet these strangers to his community, it says, or we can at least understand or imply or think, Lot probably by this stage, all these years later, has become somewhat of a leader in that community, somebody with some standing, Somebody with influence. And these two angels strolled in just like they did with Abraham earlier in the day when they visited his home. Their appearance was still like men. They still had the appearance of men. And Lot greets them. It's late at night. And he invites them into the house, which is not out of the norm for of normal hospitality in that day. Now, we've already seen how Abraham was very hospitable to these angels and to God. And Lot, in a sense, is trying to be the same way, but their response to it is completely different. You know, they're, they're, really you feel like the tone has changed in the text. No, we don't wanna go with you. Where they gladly received Abraham's hospitality, they reluctantly like, no, we don't want anything to do with you, Lot. And, and now we're gonna stay right out here. It, it definitely feels very different. They said, we're gonna stay out here in the plaza, this open area of the city. And, and that question gives, why were they so reluctant to receive Lot's hospitality? Why were they reluctant? I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that they're not there to eat, they're there to destroy. So why get chummy with the locals? I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Maybe they felt like 
Maybe the open plaza, the square, was the best place to start looking for these 10 righteous people? I'm not sure. Hard to say, but they were not interested in receiving Lot's hospitality. But eventually what happens? (coughs) I guess Lot's very persuasive, and they finally reluctantly agreed, fine, we'll go to your house. We're gonna learn here in a minute perhaps why Lot was so persistent. I believe it's because Lot understood the people living around him better than anybody. And he understood that these two men, who we don't know if he knows they're angels or not at this point, these two men strolled into the lion's den. And Lot's like, you can't stay out here. And maybe I think at the heart of it, that's why he was so persistent. Look at verse four. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And in case you're wondering, the answer is yes, I did switch translations on you for these few verses. I normally preach out of the NIV, the NIV is extremely explicit at this moment, and we have young ears in here, and I'm protecting your car ride home today. (laughs) I said, bring them out here, we wanna know them. So men, young and old, surround the house and demand, demand that Lot turn over these visitors to them. Now the phrase, men of the city, both young and old, that's very clear in the description. These are really descriptive phrases, of, um, of, of how inclusive, if you will, this group that has surrounded the house had become. Men from all over the city. So we understand, okay, all the corners of the city, all the sectors, all everything, every age group, young and old, everybody comes. And the fact that it's so inclusive, young and old, it also tells us this little detail, that their homosexual practices had become generational practices. The young was teaching the old, and it had reached this perpetual cycle of grievous sin before the Lord. That's all this detail matters. And it says, to the last man. So in other words, the behavior that we see on display is citywide, all the men to the very last one. And they only have one thing on their mind. Now the word sodomy that we know today that it's written into the laws of our land and the descriptions of behavior today, that word sodomy comes from this moment in history. It comes from the destruction of the city of Sodom for the sins that these men wanted to commit against these angels. Now, knowing this, it makes what the Lord said back on chapter 18, verse 20, make perfect sense. What does the Lord say back then? The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. This is what the Lord's talking about. This behavior that's being pointed out in the Old Testament here was an abomination to God then and It's an abomination to God today. God's disdain for this behavior is clearly expressed in the Old Testament. It is also reaffirmed multiple times in the New Testament for believers. 
And God will make it clear in his written law to Moses that this specific behavior will not be accepted, it will not be tolerated among God's people. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sin was so grievous in the eyes of God, is evidence of this. Now, look at verse six. Here's what happens next. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. So basically, Lot is trying to reason with the mob. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and, and do to them as you please. Only do, not, do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and, and drew near to break the door down. Now, I'm gonna allow you to admit something because we're all thinking it, okay? After reading that, especially those of you who are reading it for the very first time, you're not sure at this moment who you're disgusted with more, are you? The homosexually enraged mob outside of Lot's house or Lot offering up his two unmarried, untouched daughters as replacements. Who are you more mad at? I mean, who in their right mind would ever make a decision like that? Who would ever in their right mind offer that as a solution to this problem? And I ask the question, and I know you're thinking if you're not articulating it, I mean, what happened to Lot's personal values that could ever justify that action? I'm just gonna admit the obvious to you. Lot's actions in this moment are difficult to understand, almost impossible to justify. Um, Lot himself is an interesting study. Remember, Abraham pleaded with God that if he can just find 10 righteous people, that he wouldn't destroy the city. And what became very clear to these angels that evening, 10 righteous people, not gonna find him. Not gonna find him. I think God knew that when he agreed to it. Ironically, though, the one most closely resembling righteousness was Lot. Now this is gonna tell you just how depraved this community was. The most righteous man there still was Lot. And the reason why I can say that with confidence is because when you move into the New Testament, which I want you to know, references to Sodom and Gomorrah and, and, and illustrations about it and examples made, it's all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. One of those places is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And this is Peter um, talking to the church about judgment, hard times, and a lot of things. And he, and he, he makes a reference to Lot. And he says about God's ability to rescue people, if he rescued Lot, and this is Peter said, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So even Lot, with all of his problems, was still disgusted by what he saw and was trying to avoid it. And the Bible even calls him righteous. How is that even possible? We're gonna come back to that in about two minutes. Look at verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, 
So they could not find the door, which kind of makes me think, even though they were blind, they were still fighting to get in. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. I think it's safe to say these angels are not messing around anymore. Maybe they're hoping for a good night's sleep, maybe a breakfast, and they're gonna get down. No, 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 we're gonna handle this right now. They're done messing around. They pull Lot back inside the house. They strike all the men outside with blindness so they couldn't even find the door any longer. The angels spill the beans. We're here to destroy. Who's your people? Get them out of here and we're getting out of the city now. Sadly, if you keep reading the story, Lot's son-in-laws think that he's joking around and they want nothing to do with it. He's like, Lot's son-in-laws thought his daughters were unmarried. Remember back in Mary Joseph this time, if you were pledged, engaged, it was illegally binding. So you could refer to somebody as a son-in-law even though they were a son-in-law to be. So we can assume that the two daughters that, that Lot offered up who have never been touched by a man and you know, they were the engaged women to these two men. And they thought, Lot's son-in-law thought he was joking. Like, we're not going with you. Even Lot, he hesitates, the Bible says. He didn't want to go. Can you imagine? After this night and having two angels, they're destroyed. Lot didn't want to go. And the Bible says the angels took Lot, his wife, and his two daughters by the hands and forcefully led them out of the city. And if you keep reading, then you're going to know what? Lot's wife doesn't make it out, does she? The Bible gives us this one little detail down in verse 26. It says, but Lot, Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, as a kid growing up in Sunday school, I always had this impression, okay, maybe you did too, that, Ab that Lot and his daughters, his wife, they're running as fast as they can and then they hear the, the fire from heaven consuming the city and it's like Lot's wife does, what's going on back there? Poof, salt. Now, that may have very well been exactly what happened. I don't know. But it, it also could mean that simply she started to leave and her heart was so much wanting to be in Sodom, so attached to the things of Sodom, that she went back to Sodom and suffered the same fate as everybody else. It could be either one of those. But the, the bottom line is, she didn't make it. The bottom line is, she didn't get out of there when she should have. How in the world, though, does Lot get saved from the destruction of Sodom? Because he seems, at best, only slightly better than the residents of Sodom. And even though it seems that way, in the New Testament, Lot is still called a righteous man, like we just read a moment ago. First of all, he should have never lived in Sodom. And even him, even though he should have never been there, even him, not being a saint, understood and was distressed by what he saw in the city. But I can tell you, the reason Lot was saved is because of Abraham. If you look at verse 29, it says this, so God destroyed the cities of the plain. When he did that, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So friends, Lot's salvation from the destruction of Sodom was clearly and solely a matter of God's mercy and grace. That's it. So here, early on in the Bible, early on in the timeline of what God is doing in the world, we see God, what? Very clearly, he is our creator and he is also our judge. 
And God said, I will not contend with man forever. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as I mentioned a minute ago, will be referenced many times throughout the rest of the Bible and used as an example of what not to be and also as an example of what will absolutely happen in the future for the ungodly. And we think today, what does all this mean to me? This stuff happened a long time ago and, and does God even work that way today? And all these questions come into our mind. But I'm here to tell you, as it relates to us today here in Bella Vista, Arkansas, trying to live the Christian life and live for Jesus here in our community, I can tell you the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah serve all of us today as a strong warning about what is to come. Let me give you three examples of why that's true and then we're gonna be done. Jesus was speaking about his second coming um, and he was teaching about what it's gonna be like when the son of man comes and he brings up the destruction of Sodom and Lot and his wife. Listen to what he says, Luke chapter 17, verse 28. It was the same in the days of Lot. Okay, so Jesus talked about when I come again, the end, it's gonna be like it was in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom. Now here's just a little insight here. This is Jesus referencing a true event that we just read about in Genesis chapter 19. Jesus acknowledged it was true. And people say, can I believe that all those years? Can I believe the flood? Can I Jesus talked openly about each of these things that we've been studying about. It's true, friends. And Jesus is making a connection between what happened and what is to come. And he says, remember Lot? Remember the day he left Sodom? Verse 29, the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? What Jesus is saying here is, is, is very symbolic. The understanding here is this. You should not become so attached to the things of this world that you cannot escape the destruction that is to come. That's Jesus' whole point. Don't go back for this. Don't be so attached. Don't be so in love. And we get the understanding that's what Lot's wife's problem was. She was too in love with the stuff in Sodom and she died there with everybody else. And Jesus is like, the Son of Man is gonna come again. Don't be so attached to the things of this world that you can't give it up for me. And if you can't give it up, you will face the same destruction as the rest of the world. But if you will die to your old self and live for me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me and live for me, friends, you will escape the destruction that is to come onto this earth one day. That's Jesus' whole point. Verse 33, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Lose their life. I mean, Lord, you are my king. And I believe in you and I will follow you. That's what he's talking about. I tell you, on the night, that night, two people will be one in bed and the other one will take and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. What he's saying is it will be sudden. Most people will not be expecting it. Don't get so attached here his point. And he references Sodom and Lot and his wife to help drive that point home. 
In the book of Jude, New Testament, chapter one, verse seven, Jude, this is what it says there. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. How should we understand what we learned today in Genesis 19? It's an example of what is to come. Jude says that. They serve as an example of the punishment that is to come for those outside the family of God. One more. Peter, again, we read part of this verse already. Speaking of God's judgment, his salvation, God's ability to save. He says this in 2 Peter 2, 5. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on the ungodly people, Genesis chapter six, Noah, that whole moment. He's saying if God didn't spare the world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. So he's drawing a point. God destroyed, but he saved. And then he goes on, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, again, talk about Genesis 19, by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It's very clear what this is about. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, not saying maybe it happened, but he's like saying this is how it happened, and if this is so, that he saved Noah and he saved Lot. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from the trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Friends, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah for us today serve as a strong warning of what will happen to the ungodly. And very clearly reminds us that our God has the power to save. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that is grateful the saving power of God's grace in my life. That God looked at the world and even through all of its wickedness and stains and rebellion, he said, I still love these people. And he loves you. So much so he sent his son Jesus down the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The very sins that we deserve punishment for, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. You say, I'm not as bad as those people. Well, we're all sinners. And we all deserve that, that destruction. But God loved the world so much he gave his one of his son. But whoever believes in him won't perish like that. But will have everlasting life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your holy scriptures. They teach and guide and direct. And, and Lord, even though this story is quite sad, the glimmer of light that shines through is your ability to save. And Lord, you went to great lengths to save your people. And Lord, as the church today, we love being your people. We thank you, Lord, for an eternity with you that is to come. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in this room today who is not yet a believer, anybody today who is still clinging to the things of this world, 
Lord, may today be the start of their journey away from that. Lord, may we start this journey of faith and belief and understanding, and it starts with a simple phrase, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, may that be true of all of us today. In Jesus' name, amen.